It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 44, Hunger, Bread, and Cheese. The weariness that comes from decades of instability, war, economic turmoil, and hardship really began to exact its toll on the Low Countries in the early 1490s. The last of the Hook uprisings had been quashed in Holland, but there was little stability anywhere, especially as the last flames of the wider Flemish revolt still flickered in Ghent, Bruges and Slaus. Albert of Saxony and Engelbert of Nassau, ruling in place of the now absent Maximilian, were faced with the fearsome obstinacy of Philip of Cleves, and with the seas blockaded, people across the region were underfed and unable to work. In the summer and autumn of 1490, this would result in the desperate lower classes of Bruges erupting into violence against the ducal regime once more, whereas in far north Holland, a large group of very angry, very broke, and very hungry farmers, workers, and servants decided that enough was enough, and they refused to pay the taxes that the ducal government was constantly demanding so that they could keep paying for the war. Welcome to History of the Netherlands. Today, everyone is starving and everything is revolting. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of this episode, it is worthwhile emphasizing again, right off the bat, just how devastating the last 10 years of war had been on the societies within this region. They had already been left reeling after the years of almost constant warfare which led up to the death of Charles the Bold in 1477, and it had not really calmed down since. While researching this period, we have both been openly grateful for the fact that we don't live in the Low Countries in the 1480s and 90s. The economy of Flanders had been devastated, the value of its currency had plummeted by 60%, and the monetary reforms undertaken by Albert of Saxony to try to shore up the economy had led to dire consequences for the lower classes of people, who suddenly found themselves needing to pay off debts triple what they had expected them to be, and food prices had skyrocketed across the region, and with Philip of Cleves' pirate navy blockading the seas from Flanders all the way up the North Sea to Norway, the pain he was inflicting was being felt not only across the Low Countries, but also in England, Denmark, and in the Hanseatic League cities across the Baltic Sea. There had been outbreaks of plague in Flanders, Brabant, Hanno, Namur, Liège, Helders, Utrecht, and Maastricht. It is not too much of a generalization to say that almost everybody in the Low Countries was suffering in some fashion throughout this period, and that most people including the main belligerents in the war, being Philip of Cleves and Albert of Saxony, Engelbert of Nassau acting on behalf of Maximilian slash Philip the Fair, were all longing for peace and for a return to some kind of normality. In the time period that this episode covers, which is roughly 1490 to 1492, there are revolts going off all over the shop, there's the one in Bruges, which we will go into shortly, and then another in Ghent, which we are going to leave for another episode, given our strict policy of sticking to just one Flemish revolt per episode. But during the time that these revolts kicked off, a large and violent peasants' revolt would spontaneously erupt in the far north of Holland. The movement would take on the moniker The Bread and Cheese Folk. All of these revolts might have happened independently of one another, but due to the shared general condition of misery which prevailed across the Low Countries at this time, it is impossible to ignore that they follow similar patterns and share common elements with one another. 
Ultimately, the vast sums of money, which had been either squeezed out of Flanders, Holland, and the rest of the Low Countries to fund all the military endeavours of the previous years, or which had been forcibly looted from the regions by all the marauding armies that had traipsed through them, had in the end mostly been taken from the lower classes, from the peasants, the farmers, and the workers, rather than the wealthy minority. Wealth disparity was immense, and it continued to grow. The pain, anger, and discontent which these people felt after all of their suffering meant that they were ready to explode, and ready to channel their unhappiness with their lot into one final erratic orgy of violence against the authoritarian tendencies of the ducal establishment. These were all revolts that came from the very lowest echelons of society, and were arguably driven by the all-consuming pangs of ill temper that accompany being really hungry all the time. You might remember that towards the end of our last episode, we mentioned that in July of 1490, Bruges erupted into open revolt against Albert of Saxony and the Habsburg Ducal Government. The town had been suffering under a dual blockade, one by the armies of Albert of Saxony and Engelbert of Nassau, which was based at Dummer and controlled the land around Bruges, and the fleets of Philip of Cleves, which controlled the sea and operated from Slaus. Bruges' precarious position meant that no matter which side the city chose to support in the conflict that was raging between Philip and Albert slash Engelbert slash Maximilian, Bruges was going to suffer from destitution, deprivation, and starvation. This had led to the lower classes of Bruges overthrowing their city government and the mass exile of its aldermen and the patricians of the city, which also meant the removal of vast amounts of capital and business connections. Last episode, we needed to go against all of our natural inclinations at that point to go down the very tangent which this all represented. We reined ourselves in so that we could finish off the hook and cod wars for good. And that, by the way, in line with that 1481 law that was passed in Amsterdam, is the last time I am going to mention those words in that context. Because we let it sit in the previous episode, we can spend a nice chunk of this one talking about yours and our very favourite topic, yet another Flemish revolt. Shortly after the meagre remnants of Franz van Brederode's navy limped back into Slaus under the command of Jan van Naldwijk following the disastrous battle of Brouwershafen, the revolting bourgeois decided that it was time to officially rejoin team Philip of Cleves. For Bruges, the overwhelming problem facing the city was food, most specifically, a huge lack of it. Philip of Cleves put together a small army of around 150 men and 40 knights under the command of a man named Jan van Rans and ordered them to go and take control of Bruges. In early August of 1490, another of Philip of Cleves' men, this one a guy by the name of George Picavet, was appointed as captain of Bruges, and it was he who was given the unenviable task of figuring out how to get food from Slaus into Bruges, remembering that the entire area between the two towns was filled with German troops. It required a rather large army of around 2,000 men for Picavet to be able to guard a transport of 150 wagons filled with butter, cheese, fish, and other foodstuffs going into the starving city. Over the following weeks, Picavet attempted various other actions to try and resupply Bruges with the necessities of life that were running desperately low, running raids from Bruges into the countryside and smuggling goods back in. Oh, there it is. Ding, ding, ding. Well, speaking of smuggling, that tells us that we have come to today's installment of everyone's favorite segment. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The English word smuggle has nothing to do with Harry Potter. It comes from the Dutch word smokkelen, meaning to transport goods illegally. This is apparently also related to another Dutch word, smaugen, which means to eat secretly. I bet you there was a little bit of smaugen happening in these smuggling trips. Anyway, smuggling. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. So back to Picavet and his rights. There was a severe lack of wood within Bruges as well, so the day after returning from that first food transportation mission, 
Pikave was out again with his army, this time heading towards Moorbrucha to get some. On the 19th of September, they headed out of the Kolkerka Gate again, this time to try to create a better connection by water between Bruges and Slaus, one which bypassed the hostile town of Dama. To do this, they pierced a dike near the town of Hooker, creating a passage by which they could funnel supplies back into Bruges. A few more raids were conducted from Bruges, but despite these efforts, the situation within the city was simply so desperate that support for the revolt began to wane. Philip of Cleves sent various messengers to Ghent to try to get that city to join in the revolt with Bruges, but Ghent was, as usual, unwilling to help their historic rival, so they decided to just sit back and remain neutral for now. By the beginning of October, deputies were sent from Bruges to go and negotiate with Engelbert of Nassau. At around the same time, talks were also held between Philip of Cleves and Engelbert. I'm going to be straight up with you all here right now and just say this. Throughout the period we are covering in this and the next episode, which is basically August 1490 to October 1492, there were a lot of of diplomatic wranglings going on between Philip of Cleves and various representatives of the ducal government. It almost feels redundant to mention them all, however, because basically they all keep coming back to and breaking down around the same point, which we already covered in the previous episode. Neither side in this conflict was willing to back down from the fundamental positions they held. Albert slash Engelbert slash Maximilian wanted Philip of Cleves and his armies out of Slaus, but Philip of Cleves was not willing to do that if it meant that his good name and honour would be besmirched and tarnished with blame for the current conflict. The wishful authoritarians of the Habsburg government were constantly banging their heads against the wall that was the obstinance of Philip of Cleves' chivalric honour. What this all meant is that these attempts at negotiation were ultimately doomed for failure from the beginning. So if we say something like, they tried to negotiate, but it didn't work, just rest assured that it's for the same reason that you've already heard a bunch of times already. So it was that on October 23rd, 1490, peace negotiations between Engelbert of Nassau and Philip of Cleves began and failed. In the middle of these negotiations, however, a couple of interesting things did happen. One was that Philip of Cleves' pirates were able to capture some ships which were returning from the siege of Montfort in Holland, carrying a few of the big cannons that Albert of Saxony had brought with him up there. Engelbert of Nassau had been planning to put Bruges to siege with these guns, but thanks to the pirates, they were now the property of Philip of Cleves. But despite this apparent victory on paper, all it really served to do was tell the people of Bruges that their impending doom was on its way. The other interesting thing was that ambassadors from the King of France, Charles VIII, arrived at Slaus and Bruges and let them know that if the peace was to have ended, then the French would do whatever they could to assist the bourgeois. Although they had agreed to the Treaty of montil le tour the French were getting ready to insert themselves right back into the thick of things, meddling in affairs within the Low Countries. Big surprise, that... When these negotiations inevitably broke down, the people of Bruges once again swore their loyalty to Philip of Cleves. Their hunger and deprivation, however, forced them to once again take up talks with Engelbert of Nassau, which they tried to do in the middle of November, but he was not interested in negotiating. Instead, on the 21st of November 1490, Nassau, with 1,200 knights and 2,000 foot soldiers, attempted under the cover of mist to break his way into Bruges through the Aisel port. When the citizens of Bruges realized that the city was under attack, huge numbers of them ran to the city walls and to that gate, intimidating the attacking German army as only a Flemish urban population can do, so much so that they retreated, but only after setting fire to all the houses in the area. So, victory Bruges, but not a full victory. Nevertheless, the German armies remained positioned around Bruges and regularly fired 15-kilogram cannonballs into the city. Chaos reigned within the town, and the food situation was now so dire that women and children whose husbands had fled the town during the siege were forced out. 
beggars and poor people who couldn't afford the soaring food prices were given permission to leave on the condition that they did not join the enemy. I reckon they would have done anything for a sandwich. Philip of Cleves must have realised that Bruges was now approaching its breaking point. On the night of the 25th of November, a team from Dummer went out to cut another hole in the dike nearby Hooker to try to get a few transport ships filled with bread and dried fish into Bruges. A German army saw this happening and tried to block the hole up, but were beaten back by Philip's men. On the night of the 28th of November, Picavet led another raiding army of about 500 men out of Bruges to go and collect those food supplies. On their way back to Bruges, at about 5am on the 29th, they were surprised when a German army of about 2,000 men under the personal command of Engelbert of Nassau, which had lain hidden on either side of the water, suddenly made themselves not so hidden and attacked. The fighting went on for hours, but despite their most valiant efforts, almost all of the men from Bruges were either killed or captured. George Picavet himself was captured and shortly thereafter beheaded. That same day, deputies were sent from Bruges to Engelbert of Nassau to surrender and agree to peace. The treaty that emerged between Engelbert of Nassau and Bruges was pretty standard stuff. On the 4th of December 1490, the people were forced to go outside of the gates of the city and fall to the feet of Engelbert, on behalf of Maximilian, of course, where he got to publicly admonish them. Their privileges and their rights were restored, but Bruges would need to pay a huge fine of 150,000 St. Andres Hulden. They needed to follow all of the requirements of the Peace of Montilletour, and they had to immediately bring into effect the much-despised money reforms. Also, the peace excluded by name dozens of ringleaders of the revolt, including, first and foremost, Philip of Cleves. Later that day, Engelbert entered the city of Bruges and decided to take up residence in Philip's own house, the Hof von Ravenstein. That must have given him a smug and satisfying night's sleep, but the most lasting effect this surrender would have was on the long-term prosperity of Bruges itself. As historian Ada Fowl writes about this moment, quote, For Bruges, the crisis was over, and the decline of the city began. End quote. Bruges would never again reach the levels of power and influence that it had long had. Having put an end to the revolt in Bruges, Engelbert of Nassau set his sights on the most pressing problem in Flanders, Philip of Cleves and his pirate den of Slaus. There were attempted negotiations at Holst in early January 1491, which, you won't be surprised to learn, failed. After this, Engelbert of Nassau decided that the best course of action would be to attack Slaus itself. The almost indomitable position of Slaus meant that any attempt to take the city would be long and costly and require a huge amount of collective effort. There was a gathering of the states of Flanders, which discussed how exactly they were going to protect Flanders from Philip of Cleves and his army slash navy in Slaus. Engelbert of Nassau split his forces up and placed them in the towns of Ardenberg, Heist, Lissavega, and St. Anne ter Mauden to effectively close the lands around Slaus. At the same time, a bunch of warships were placed at the nearby town of Beerfleet, so that when the time was right, Slaus could be blockaded by sea as well. Be this as it may, Philip of Cleves, ensconced in Slaus at the beginning of 1491, was not going anywhere anytime soon, because although the revolt within Bruges had been put down, it is important to remember that Ghent, actually the most formidable and intractable of Flemish cities, was also highly displeased with the monetary reforms and the peace of Montilletour. Ghent might not have been willing to come to the aid of Bruges, but that did not mean that Ghent was unwilling to lash out on its own against the ducal government once again, and Philip of Cleves was soon going to have a very powerful ally in his corner, the French king, Charles VIII. But, like we said earlier, this is not the History of Flemish Revolts podcast, and we are trying our best to refrain from talking about more than one of those per episode. So we will leave things like this in Flanders today, 
And on the other side of this ad break, we will journey north to Holland to take a look at the most delicious sounding revolt we've seen so far, that of the bread and cheese people. Welcome to Welcome back. The far northern tip of Holland contains a few smaller regional areas which kind of blend together but still maintain a semblance of localized identities. Three of these are Kenemerland, Waterland or Waterland, and West Frisia. Kenemerland is a western coastal part of North Holland, flanked by the sea on its western side and the rest of the peninsula on its east. Waterland is a chunk of land north of Amsterdam on the old Zuiderzee coast, and West Friesland is the area north of that, which was taken over by the Count of Holland, Floris V, in the 1280s, which we covered way back in episode 11, The Murder of Floris V. In that episode, we met scores of revolting Kenema peasants, which, spoiler alert, is about to happen again. People in both of these regions had long been incorporated into the administrative sovereignty of the Count of Holland, who had also been the Duke of Burgundy since Philip the Good, and that was the root of these problems. Up until the beginning of 1491, this part of North Holland was relatively calm. It was on the periphery of the Franz von Brederode uprising to the south in Rotterdam and the siege of Vorden under Jan van Montfort. It was also fairly removed from the unrest in Flanders. But the financial funny buggers that the ducal government had been playing with the general economy across the Low Countries, along with the increased taxation of the Netherlandish territories to pay for the wars against Philip of Cleves and against the French, began to expose cracks in this calm that would soon widen into gaping chasms of popular unrest. In Holland, people had to pay the Ruitergeld, a tax which was levied to cover the costs of war. By 1491, however, because of the devaluation of currency, subsequent debt dilemma and this tax, thousands had been made destitute. The majority of these were of the lower class peasantry, farmers and workers, but wealthy landholders were not completely immune from such a fate. At this time, and because of this, in large towns like Leiden and Amsterdam, over 10,000 people in each place were lining up for charity bread every week. Even smaller towns like Horn, whose total population was still fewer than 6,000, at least 2,000 are said to have been forced into poverty. It's one-third. In the small villages, known adorably as Dorpias, the economic stress caused many people with capital to leave the countryside and to go to the big cities, leaving many would-be workers without work. This terrible situation led to scores of so-called speckholders, who roamed around the countryside going from town to town. These were people who had been forced into poverty, into begging, stealing, and sometimes violently accosting the more well-to-do for their goods and monies. As the spring of 1491 unfolded, fewer and fewer people were able or willing to pay the Rautergeld, despite the continual demands and attempts by ducal bailiffs and loyal-to-the-government-urban elites to extract it from them by threat and punishment, while still more and more found themselves in or on the brink of poverty, forced into begging because of it. This soon became an even more urgent matter for the ducal government, represented in Holland in the form of the Stadthalder of Holland, Jan van Egmont. The destruction wrought on Rotterdam, Vorden and Montfort because of the recent sieges there would need to be repaired, and this would require even more funds from an already depleted populace. From his perspective, the Rautergeld simply had to be collected. Now, the order of the following events is not certain because the main sources Chroniclers Velius and Cornelius Aurelius, as well as a little bit from our friend Molinet, differ on dates and details. And that's just great. But in this account, we have relied greatly on the analytical assembly work of historian J. Schurkogel, and we'll try to relate these events pretty much in line with their argument of how these things played out. In early 1491, 
many people across West Friesland, Kenmerland, and Waterland refused to pay the Rautergeld. In response to this, sometime in late March or early April, the Stadthalter of Holland, Jan van Eckmond, set off with a bunch of soldiers with the objective of throwing his weight around the region and helping to rustle up this money. Other ducal officers, such as the clerk of the Council of Holland, Jan Ohm van Weingerder, also set out to different towns to do likewise. In and of itself, them doing this was not an unusual act. Egmont, or one of his representatives, had already carried out such actions on eight occasions since 1489. On this one particular occasion, though, it sparked a bunch of non-compliant reactions across the board. It sparked rebellion. Whether these were directly connected occurrences or a more generally broad spontaneous sense of defiance that arose, there was fierce public resistance to ducal forces and authorities and the outright refusal to pay the tax in the farming regions between and around towns like Schachen, Hochwalde, Horn, Alkmaar and Spanbroek. Farmers and peasants, generally people who were already suffering during these times of economic hardship, simply refused to cough up the tax. Skirmishes erupted and two protesters were killed. This then sparked an even fiercer public backlash against Egmont and his men. Then the rioters began coalescing, coming from out of those towns and setting off on a march towards Alkmaar. In Alkmaar itself, a bunch of these rioters came together as an angry mob and stormed a house that belonged to a man called Klaas Korf, a local urban leader and tax collector for the Stadthalter. Molinet chips in here with a couple of things that the other sources don't mention. He reckons that Klaas Korf had already appeared at the court in The Hague around Christmas the year prior to complain about people not paying the tax. This paints a picture of a man who was very solicitous in his job of impoverishing people on behalf of the government. He was not at home when the raiders arrived, so managed to escape the immediate fury of the mob. We can be pretty sure that this absence saved his life, as one of his servants was tragically not so fortunate. They were killed. His house was then completely ransacked. The rebels of North Holland, driven by hunger and frustration, had come suddenly to the stage of violent revolt. Following the attack on Klaas Korf's house, disparate farmers from the region began to descend upon Alkmaar, forming what, to anyone who was on team government, would have looked like a pretty formidable force of angry and hungry people dominating the town. By the middle of April, Egmont was well aware that he needed to find a way to end the exploding insurgents and calamitous consequences of all of this before this force went on a rampage. Like I mentioned though, the exact chronology of events here is really murky. If you believe Molinet, then in early 1491, the town of Harlem stepped into the role of trying to avoid open conflict, sending representatives to mediate between the parties. The traditional narrative at this point is that the government was lenient in its dealings and largely appeased the revolting peasantry, many of whom now returned to their farms. However, the period that is the spring and summer of 1491 is seriously confused between all the main sources. It is worth saying that even the exact years of all this are open to debate since Cornelius Aurelius and Velius, the two chroniclers who have most been depended upon with this story, only talk about the events that make up the bread and cheese revolt as happening in 1492, as do other chroniclers. But to add to this confusion, Molinet puts events that definitely happened in 1491 in 1492, and Molinet is certainly not immune to being wrong about dates. Anyway, the point is that there is much conjecture about all of this, and especially about this particular phase of the revolt. There don't seem to have been any big confrontations or battles, but tensions almost certainly did not disappear. As Scherkochel puts it, after that first phase of the uprising, and during the latter half of 1491, quote, what is certain is that the peace did not return, end quote. So we can safely imagine that as the summer of 1491 commenced, tensions continued to escalate on both sides, 
at some stage during those months, a government building in Horn called the Blockhouse was occupied by a rebel group, and along with sections of the region they already controlled and the continued presence of insurgents and miscreants in and around towns like Alkmaar and Horn, the whole movement remained a huge issue for the Ducal Order. One message that went to Mekelen on the 31st of July basically says, and I am most certainly paraphrasing, that the continued disorder in Holland was because everyone was starving, so making peace with Philip of Cleves would be one way to end this uprising. At the very least, this communique shows that people in the government clearly identified that the regional tensions in North Holland were part of a wider problem in the Burgundian lands writ large, that the final burden of payment for decades of war and revolt had come to rest on the taut and bony shoulders of the Low Country's starving lower class. A mandate from the Court of Holland that was sent to one of its West Frisian administrators and payment collectors had an attached missive telling him that people who refused to pay the tax should be executed. At the end of July, two so-called speckholders were convicted and coincidentally so too was one of the suspected leaders of the uprising in Alkmaar, a man named Walter Bartzone. And here it is also worth pointing out that defining this conflict as one between two sides is simplistic, as always. Those who were taking part in the uprising were doing so to varying degrees and for varying reasons, not all of them connected. It is impossible to get a full overview of all the people who made up this insurrection movement. Historians have looked at the verdicts handed down to the convicted in the aftermath to get some idea of who was involved, but that is only a small sample size, of course. Included within those convictions were vagabonds who had been dispossessed, there were unemployed brewers and fullers and weavers, coppersmiths, boilermakers, sieve makers, a barber, shoemakers, and innkeepers. It is unclear whether there was any genuine connection or sense of unity between so-called speckholders and the farmers or the urban citizens whose refusal to pay the Rautigeld had kicked off this revolt. The government seemed willing to treat them like there was. One man in Alkmaar, Raya Klaassen, as an example, was both a citizen of the town and treated publicly as a speckholder. So there probably was a fair crossover as the speckholders were an ill-defined and varied group and many people who were classed as such would merely have been farmers or town citizens who had fallen into poverty and lost everything, everything but perhaps the different relationships that they still maintained with fellow farmers, neighbours, family, and so on. So while it is unclear how the different parties in this revolt lined up with each other, we can safely assume that there were numerous human relationships, connections, and acquaintances woven all throughout it. A greater sense of organisation appears to have come into the uprising during the summer months of 1491. A meeting was arranged at some point early in the summer that took place in Horn, attended by representatives from all of the towns and the cities of Kenemerland except for Enkhuizen. At this meeting, the towns collectively agreed that to the last person, they would not pay the router held any longer. So that was a big stake in the ground. By June, word of this popular unrest in North Holland had also spread the length of the Low Countries, reaching the ears of the former you-know-what-defeated-partisan-rebels who had failed to hold Rotterdam and since fled to Slaus. I'm not going to say their name. Jan van Naldwijk, the old captain of Franz van Brederode, looking for a new foothold from which to continue his unspeakable cause arrived by surprise at Vike on Zee, harboured his fleet in Marsdeep, the strait between Den Helder and the island of Tessel, and quickly had his men occupy Tessel itself and the region around Vieringen on the northeastern tip of Holland. From there, he set about trying to push his agenda into this completely unrelated conflict with further attempts on the towns of Horn, which is already a hotspot for the rebellion and nearby Enkhuizen, which was more reticent than the other towns. The burghers of these towns resisted his offer, despite there being fairly strong anti-authoritarian sentiments within their walls. There were partisans, 
Just not that kind of partisan. To be serious, though, the general fear they had of giving support to Naldvag was that they would attract a siege that they would not be able to sustain or survive. Van Naldvag was left to partake in a patch of petty piracy on the Zaudersee, which he spent the summer doing before heading back to Slaves. All of this, in our opinion, had Philip of Cleves' hands all over it, and the piratical policies that had been serving him so well around Slaves now served him and Naldvag really well in the Zaudersee, helping to further disrupt stability deeper into Maximilian's realm. Who this spot of piracy did not serve, however, were the peasant rebels of North Holland, who in the long run would be the ones to suffer the most from what became a partial blockade of their region. What exactly happened over the last half of 1491 and early 1492 is unclear, but Horn and Alkmaar remained in rebel hands. This brought a lot of pressure onto the wealthier members of the towns, who now had these recalcitrant freedom fighters knocking on their doors and demanding food and drink. In the first half of March 1492, the burghers of Horn managed to convince, which means bribe, all the insurrectionists there to go and quarter only in Alkmaar. Along the way, this motley force of disgruntled folk took a couple of castles, Newburg and Middleburg, and after they had arrived in Alkmaar, basically planted themselves in the town, making it the key focal point for malcontents seeking to join the revolt against the ducal tax. Their stated aim was to be able to afford necessary foodstuffs, such as bread and cheese. These two items became the symbols of the uprising, with banners made to display images of them, as well as the individual fighters attaching small chunks of both bread and cheese to their belts, indicating that it was these basic things they were fighting for. Don't know why they didn't just eat those chunks of bread and cheese. The Alkmaar civic government, being composed mainly of the urban elite who had much to lose, tried desperately to appease and rid the town of the bread and cheese folk, even though many of their number came from Alkmaar anyway. Although there is evidence they had some success in getting the rebels to leave, they were clearly not entirely confident in their ability to deal with these people properly because they eventually turned to the Stadtholder, pleading with him to come and sort this mess out. A flurry of correspondence surged between all the main towns and stakeholders of the region. It was finally decided that the city of Harlem would invite representatives from the rebelling towns to come and meet within Harlem's walls and try to find a resolution. Molinet tells a story that during this meeting, which based on other evidence definitely took place in early March 1492, one of the rebel leaders, a guy called Antonis Willemzone, turned up at the head of a bunch of rebels and proposed that Harlem let the entire rebel army in. Now, the wealthier citizens of Alkmaar, where the majority of the insurrectionists were still camped, would most certainly have supported this. But the town burghers of Harlem, unsurprisingly, very much did not. In this version, it was a day after this that representatives from towns and villages across Kennemerland rocked up at The Hague and put their case before the Council of Holland and the Stadthalter, Jan van Egmond. The matter was deemed too important to decide then and there, so missives were sent to Leiden, Amsterdam, Harlem, Edam, and Monikendam, which were all told to send representatives to The Hague post-haste to help with the ruling. What this meant was that the petitioners had to wait a week for the decision to arrive. When the decision did arrive, it seemed a good one for the revolters. The remaining tax to be paid would be waived, the rebels would not be prosecuted, and Harlem, for its good work in playing the mediator role, would have this taken into account when it came to future financial obligations to the government. Many rebel farmers left Alkmaar and returned to their farms, and any citizens who had fled were able to return without risk to their persons or possessions. It was a win-win-win. Wait a minute, what does the ducal government win? Well, it would appear that Jan van Egmond and the Council of Holland were being a little bit underhanded in looking for their win, because in the third week of April, they secretly set about mobilizing a force of 200 men-at-arms, and by the end of the month, were garrisoned in Egmond's castle. Along with loyalist citizens of Alkmaar, Horn, and other towns where the rebel-minded, 
who were basically the working class, still lingered, Egmont had clandestinely arranged that he would appear before the city gates of Alkmaar with this force. They would have to let him in, and through this action, he would be finalizing the submission of the bread and cheese folk to his will. And bringing this, well, I was going to say, bringing this unsavory affair to an end. But bread and cheese is most certainly a savory affair. Anyway, that was the plan. But alas, a priest got wind of this secret arrangement and got word out to the rebel leaders, who mobilized all the adjutants who would return to their farms, who then set back out into the fray, heading for Alkmaar. When Egmont did turn up before the city gates, expecting the full submission and entry to within, the gates remained closed to him, and he and his force found themselves under attack from scores of rebel farmers and Alkmaarders. He suddenly had to make a hasty retreat, which he did, all the way back to the Hague. Once there, he took out his quill and parchment and wrote to Albert of Saxony to basically say, this bread and cheese business has come with a great pickle, which I am now in. This overly aggressive action by Egmont rallied the farmers once again, and as Herkokel puts it, they, quote, streamed out of North Holland, end quote, and began to arrange themselves into troop units. Shortly, they had set off, for some reason, towards Harlem, on the way taking the towns of Beferweg, Felsen, and Sandport. Thereafter arriving before the city gates of Harlem in the early evening of May 3rd. These gates remained closed to them. They asked politely and got a no, and then they asked less politely and still got a no. They were steadfastly refused by the town's sheriff. Oh no, what would they do? Well, some of their number thought they should return to Alkmaar. I reckon I would have been one of those. After all, why were they in Harlem? All Harlem had done in this was try to mediate between the absolutely penniless rebels and the rapacious ducal government. It wasn't their fault that Egmont had betrayed the peace that had been reached. Anyway, according to Molinet, the besieging hungry peasant army didn't have to do much to take Harlem, as sympathetic Harlemers within its walls opened one of the gates for them. The rebels surged in and towards the city hall, which is where some of the you know trusty old urban elite had sequestered themselves, fearing for their safety, with pretty good reason. There are two accounts of how the marauders got into the city hall. Cornelius Aurelius tells us that they offered the besieged urban toffs inside safe conduct out of the building, after which the doors were open. Molinet, backed up by another source, on the other hand, says that it was taken by force. However it happened, the result was that they took the building and two Harlem aldermen and the sheriff, who had initially refused them entry into the city, were killed then and there. The next day saw particular buildings and many houses of wealthier Harlemers ransacked and looted before order was finally restored on the second day. The city was now the base of a full-flung regional revolt. A letter was sent to Horn telling the rebels there to send reinforcements immediately because they now had Harlem. According to Molinet, soon there was a rebel army of around 6,000. About 40% of them, by the way, were from Harlem, and the rest were from Kenemerland, Waterland, and West Frisia. On May 4th, the day after the rebel group had arrived in Harlem, Egmont made his way to Leiden to organize the regional defense. Then, a day later, he shot off another letter to Albert of Saxony suggesting that perhaps he would like to bring all his German mercenaries that he had over there in Horncum, where he was, and come to lead said defence of North Holland. Being a veritable action Jackson, Albi Animosus set off almost straight away, also ordering towns and villages across Holland to send able men to Harlem. Meanwhile, the rebels in control of Harlem now decided to take another big scalp, Leiden, they set off with their pretty big force, 6,000 people, but when they got there on the 10th of May, they found Leiden well fortified and completely closed off to them. They attacked it anyway and managed to take a stronghold bulwark that had recently been erected outside the walls, but despite this, they could not breach the walls and gate themselves, and a fearsome sally on horseback led by Jan van Egmont soon saw the rebels scampering away and being hacked down. Over the following night and day, survivors slowly turned up back in Harlem, and a bunch of the farmer rebels at this stage just gave up and returned to their holdings, now fully aware of what it often meant 
when meekly armed peasants came up in battle against well-armed and trained knights. Now was Albert of Saxony's turn. On the 11th of May, he sent one of his German captains, Wilwold von Schaumburg, via ship to Nordwijk, from which he and a bunch of his troops set out, going via Zandvoort and Wijk an See for the rebel-held Beverwijk, which they promptly laid to siege. After a battle about which basically nothing is known, Beverwijk was taken and utterly pillaged by the ducal forces. News of this saw messages flying out of the rebel strongholds of Alkmaar and Harlem, once again seeking to recruit any farmers and other recalcitrants to the cause. Albert then sent sternly worded messages to the major cities of Holland, warning them not to allow any one of their citizens to aid the rebels, particularly the sympathetic porters. To Leiden and Amsterdam in particular, being closest to Harlem, he warned the city governments to deny any passage of the working class towards Harlem or towards Heemskerk. Heemskerk is just north of Beverwijk, which had now fallen under Wilwold von Schaumburg's control. So Heemskerk had become the place where the peasant farmer army was properly assembling. Naturally then, that is where the two armies locked horns on the 15th of May. And despite their formidable size, the rebel troops were no match for the experienced ducal soldiers. Schurkochel points out that the rebel cause was not helped by the fact that one of them, a guy called Peter van Leeuwenwerf and his unit, made up of angry, hungry servants, fled the battle without taking part. On top of this, a West Frisian auxiliary force was on its way to help out, but got there too late. It's in times like that that one of the most commonly used Dutch words comes to mind. It means disappointing. Yummer. This was the battle that broke the bread and cheese board. The rebels who had taken over Harlem pretty quickly surrendered, followed by those in Alkmaar, and soon the rest of North Holland followed suit. Albert of Saxony had waved his wand of power and ensured that the immense resources of his office would not suffer a dent by an uprising that the Stadtholder and the Council of Holland had been unable to keep under check. A few days after the battle at Heemskerk, the proxy ruler of the Low Countries, alongside members of the Council of Holland, made an entrance into the now submissive Harlem. Albert oversaw the handing down of reparations and punishments, which included a bunch of executions as well. And that was the end of the bread and cheese folk. Although, just as we saw with previous bouts of factional or social conflict in Holland, which we refuse to mention anymore, although the label of the movement disappeared, the roots of unrest remained. There would be continual meetings of malcontents in West Friesland well into the year, and even as late as October, Albert was prepared to send troops up to Holland to ensure that his enforced stability of the region was maintained. I think we can safely say, however, that variations of rebellious chatter and feelings of discontent towards the government and wealthy minority would very much remain. By the middle of June, Albert had left North Holland to return to Zeeland, where he would rejoin the ongoing preparations for the ongoing conflict that had been the biggest thorn in his side since taking over from Maximilian. Slaus was being laid to siege because none of those negotiations between Philip of Cleves and Albert had gone anywhere. But we, dear listeners, we are going somewhere, which is out, to celebrate King's Night. So we will leave it there for now. And should we survive the first legal King's Day festivities since the pandemic, then we will meet you here next time on History of the Netherlands. Thanks so much for listening to History of the Netherlands. We are pumped to have been receiving all kinds of nice words from people from random corners of the internet lately, on Reddit, in reviews, in emails, Twitter. If you are enjoying our show, please consider spreading the love about it to people you know by sharing our podcast with friends, family, social media acquaintances, or even just strangers. Just go up to someone you don't know and just say, smugglers, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Reviews on your podcast player also really help the algorithms which control our lives to push our show in front of more people. So if you were to do that, we would love you forever. If you are interested in following us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at History of NL. We are trying our best to make it a little bit more Dutch history related rather than just cricket and Aussie rules footy chat. But it's so hard when 
our team, the Melbourne Demons, are just playing so well. Oh, it's golden age of Aussie rules footy at the moment. But anyway, each day we are trying to post a different on this day factoid about Dutch history. So check it out and let us know what your favorite dates in Dutch history are. Most importantly, however, the best thing you can do to help our podcast is to become a signatory to the great privilege of Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands, one word, and become a patron. You can choose to donate whatever amount you want per episode. And don't forget that the sky's the limit in whatever currency you choose. Doing so helps us cover the costs of keeping this podcast running, like paying for our studio space, for the website costs, etc. And it gives you early access to our episodes, minus those insidious ad breaks. It is a win-win. Plus, if you sign up, you will get to have your praises sung publicly like the following legendary people. Lawrence Hook, you are the only person, Lawrence, who can entice me to say that word again. And Thankfully, it is in the context of your endearing generosity and our immense gratitude. Thanks so much, Lawrence. With a name like that, you would have either fit in very nicely during the 150-year civil war in Holland or perhaps had a very troublesome time when you were introducing yourself. Hello, I am Hook. I am Cod, prepare to die. We are going to save you any enduring trouble that might still exist from this and lend you the nickname of the late, great David Hooks. Hooksy. Cheers, Hooksy. Cynthia Van Dyke. Cheers, Cynthia, or as she's known to her friends like us, Virgil. On the verge, edgy, edgy. Enrique Gutierrez, thanks a lot for your support, Enrique. His Dutch friends call him Kerken. His Aussie mates like us, Kirky, and you can figure that one out. James the Czech, what a fantastic name. We already have a Patreon friend called Pass, so we're just going to call you Hands Out. Hands Out's 50, mate. And finally, Jan Engelin, the angel of Patreon. Thank you so much. Our beloved Patreon saint, Jan, blessed be ye forever in our hearts. And that's it for now. You will hear from us later. Should we survive the impending weekend? Until then, doey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.